Blog Talk Radio. This is the Science of Melanology presented by Dr. Jewel Pukra and Dr. T. Owens Moore. All recorded and printed materials are copyrighted by the Jewel Publications, Inc., a subsidiary of the House of Jewels. Any unauthorized duplication of these materials is strictly prohibited. Our commitment is to connect with those who want to discover and learn the science of life and the science of living. For additional books, MP3, Mayan calendars, immortal chat CDs, registration for the balancing program, and the advanced balancing workshop, please visit our website, thejewelnetwork.com, or call 602-559-1842. That's thejewelnetwork.com, or call 602-559-1842. Thank you. Welcome back, people. Welcome. Dr. Jewel, are you with me? <laughs> yes, I am. Greetings, everyone. Hi. Yes. I'm so glad to be back. And, of course, you can hear that Dr. Moore is here with us and ready to go. And I'm back, too, and I've really missed you all. And it is so great to be back on the Melanology. And, as usual, we have a lot of additional information to share with you to increase your level of endarkenment. Put parenthesis around that word, endarkenment, because that is one of Dr. Moore's icons that he has coined for us. So we might as well start out on you just defining that term relative to the real phenomena of what really happens with light, especially in the pineal gland. So tell us more about endarkenment and the pineal gland today. Okay, sure. I guess when we just think about the, the the reality of gaining knowledge or information, most people think that they become uh, enlightened because they've seen the light and they've now gotten new information. But in actuality, most of the time when people are meditating, they're not meditating in light, but meditating in darkness. So darkness becomes very important and key and critical in terms of obtaining a higher form of consciousness. So when I use the word in darken us, it really is to shed light on this magnificent opportunity to look at the internal dynamics of our body and how our body functions to be in tune with the environment. And nighttime is a very important time. During nighttime, the pineal gland is a very centralized organ in the brain produces a chemical called melatonin. We talked about it before. Can I just inject one thing here before you go into uh, melatonin that I thought was really important because... I was just looking at the explanation on light in regards to pigment versus the actual wavelength. And one of the things that they made very clear is that there's always light. However, when the light is actually turned in on itself, that it is not reflecting itself outward from its source because we can't see a particular wavelength projected onto the retina of the eye it appears to be dark, but literally there's really no such thing as darkness. What we're seeing is light that has actually folded in on itself. So I use the analogy, and again, here I am as the nighttime scientist, as a rosebud. And so when the rose bush is in its budding stage, complete buds, we don't know what color rose we're going to get. Are we? see right now is that it's, you know, we got these green things over this protrusion, and it's like, okay, well, I, when I bought the rose bush and I planted it, it said that I was going to get, you know, livid red roses. 
Okay, that's the name of the rose bush, bush, live it red. But I can't prove that right now because everything, the petals, et cetera, are all enfolded on themselves. And so, therefore, I don't see any red petals. But over time, obviously, the rose unfolds its petals to us, and it reflects very intensely the frequency of the red wavelength. And so that's what I see to confirm that this is actually red. But it was always red, but I couldn't see it because the petals that contain this pigment that would reflect the red wavelength back to me was folded in on itself. And so when we don't see light, it's not because it's not any light there. It's because the light is basically not really being reflected upon our nervous system from an exterior sense. Now, I kind of hesitated when I said that, Doc, because when I say an exterior sense, when the neurons are firing, that's when we appear to see light, when the impulses are moving. But that's one of the things that happens in meditation is that it appears to be dark, there's nothing going on because the excitation level, there's no movement of the energy, is very, very low, and so therefore there's no stimulation or carrying of a frequency of energy, so we appear in our mind not to see anything. Is that correct? Right. Okay, so that's really the same thing that's happening. When you use the term in darkening in your work, what I saw in my mind was like, okay, that's really right, really interesting, because instead of the light being now reflected out, in myself, I'm actually taking the light and folding it in on myself to really allow deep regeneration and deep energizing of my tissue so there's really nothing that's being reflected out or activity that's releasing energy because all the energy now is being held. So it's like this phenomena that they have, they call it recursion, where you can reach a particular harmony where the light as it actually is reflected out, also bends on itself and returns to the source at the same rate. And this harmony that occurs now actually amplifies and increases the amount of energy that is being absorbed and also released. So they find that the circle or the arc-like geometry is what causes this recursive phenomena, and they allege that because of the angulation of how the pyramids are built, that the way the light hits those angles, it causes the light to bend on itself at a certain rate, the frequency, where it actually continuously sustains whatever object is in the pathway of those recursive frequencies of light. So therefore, nothing in those pathways are destroyed. Even when they put those vessels inside with the grain and cloth and the jewelry and whatever else it might have been found in many of these pyramids, the way that the light frequency bent on itself because of the geometry that was used to capture the light, it was self-sustaining. Okay, so I just thought that was just really interesting that, again, the pyramids are always filled with light, but when you go in them, you don't see it because the light is turning in on itself, but it's still very much there, and that's what it appears to happen to us at night, is that the light actually is held in the tissues as opposed to being emanated out to do work. Well, you shared a lot of information there. 
background information to help the audience understand where you're coming from. And then the other issue I'll try to recall is the way you're talking about refraction, the reflectiveness. Recursion. Okay, recursion. Okay, I hadn't heard that term used, but I can try to look at how it also touches the pineal gland. Visible light, as you just said, is what we see. So talked about in your books, and we know that there's a large electromagnetic spectrum that exists out there from gamma rays, x-rays, all the way down to just UV bands and down to microwaves, but the one that we see in terms of light is visible light. I measure like 350, about 750 nanometers. So. Right, teeny-weeny small aspect of light relative to what's available to be seen. Right, yeah. so as you said, even when we're asleep, we still have some light coming in, and now this light is being turned on itself to what has some manifestation on the physiological processes. That's where the pineal gland comes into play as an organ. Now, what's interesting is that the eyes that we have, there are two, two eyeballs, and the back part in the retina, those same cells in the retina are similar to the shape of the cells in the pineal gland. So the pineal gland becomes a phototransducer. It transduces the light energy into something that the body can recognize. And it's key because, as you talked about in the pyramids and how the light shines in certain places, it goes through certain corridors. It's being absorbed as it's going through. And it's, I use the word reflecting. It's it's being reflected and refracted. The same thing's happening as it goes from the eyeball then to the pineal gland. Because it doesn't go straight from the eyeball to the pineal gland. It goes to the hypothalamus first. It also goes to the top part of your spinal cord before it gets to the pineal gland, which means there's a whole lot of other chambers, as you just talked about with the pyramid complex. And we know the power of the pyramids, which means we can have a powerful pyramidal structure within our anatomy that we don't really pay attention to. Now, see, this is interesting that you would say that because those individuals who are members of my Immortal Chat Club and high world out there, again, you should join the Immortal Chat Club because this is all the foundational information to really help you understand and begin to activate your immortal genes because you do have them. And what we talked about yesterday literally was a process of activating melanin to begin to increase and enhance its photosynthetic capability. And the analogy that I used was the fact that if you look at the Pyramid of Cheops, you know, two-thirds at the top of the Pyramid of Cheops, I don't know what direction it is, what cardinal point, there is an opening, an opening that leads to a chamber, and that chamber is then connected to a shaft. And the shaft actually goes down into the pyramid until it opens up into a bigger chamber, which has alleged to be named the queen's chamber initially, and then the king's chamber, and then the shaft then opens up to the whole base of the pyramid. And what I have found so intriguing is that that pathway literally represents the pathway that light takes when it goes into the eye, just like you just just described, and then it actually then goes into the pineal gland, then it has to go literally into the brain stem and then back up into the cerebellum because what we talk about is the fact that the cerebellum, which seems to be mysterious again to most of our scientific colleagues, that the nighttime scientists perceive this to be a massive containment of information in the form of very, very densely packed neurons that contain information. However, it appears to be dormant in most human beings. So I just thought it was just very interesting that looking at this pyramid, it seems to be a key 
that even how it is laid out in its internal architecture follows the scheme or the pathway as to how light enters the eye, travels through the brain. Just like you said, it doesn't go straight in. It has to actually then be deflected and then posteriorly return back to the higher centers of the brain so that we can become enlightened and darkened simultaneously. Right, right. And then the other information about what happens, it triggers some chemical mechanisms. Called exactly. It. And we've talked throughout the past few weeks about this melanocortin as a topic. Melanocortin basically are are chemicals that have some relationship to melanin. Uh, they're different peptides that come from a large molecule that we mentioned last week with my uh, co-host, Rashika. We were talking about pro-opio-melanocortin. Right. And we're vibing about this chemical that's a large protein molecule that can be cleaved to make other molecules. Well, those other molecules would be called melanocortin. Well, guess what? Melanocortin receptors are members of the rhodopsin family. Wow. You know what rhodopsin is? Wow. Oh, yeah, you can't see without it. <laughs> so in the first light, right, rhodopsin <laughs> breaks down to opsin and retinol. Right. It's dark. Opsin and retinol then form back to make rhodopsin. In that mm-hmm. breakdown, you know what retinol is? Retinol actually is vitamin A. So when people talk about eating those carrots and they're getting the beta carotene to stimulate this process to make sure that the eyesight is proper. But now, you know this information that you shared with me, Doc, strictly indicates that vitamin A is a strategic component of the melanin biopolymer. And so it's like, wow, this becomes very unique because now when we really start looking at why are we eating these vegetables, why are we eating these particular foods, and they said because this has vitamin A and this has vitamin C, well, this new information that you share with me indicates that there are a selective number of vitamins that actually form part of the melanin biopolymer and vitamin A, the carotenoid, is one of them. So we go back to melanin again. So nobody's really made the association that vitamin A and melanin are synonymous, but they are. Right. And then the the whole issue of those substances that actually talk to the receptors, they're called ligands, chemicals that stimulate. But check this out. There are selective ligands now for the melanocortin receptors. And, you know, some of them are synthetically made, but some of them mm-hmm. are, you know, actually natural. But what they do is they help out with tanning, anti-obesity, aphrodisiac drugs. Uh-huh. They're talking about mood and cognition. Now, this becomes complex because there's like four different receptors for melanocortin. Right. Now I have, okay. Just like we talk about with serotonin, the different subtypes of serotonin receptors, same thing with dopamine, different subtypes of dopamine receptors, not like a one or two, but there's multiple. The same thing for melanocortin receptors, which means when we deal with the issue of sunlight and people feeling good when the sun is shining, as a result of those melanocortin receptors responding to what the body's producing. You are listening to the Jewel Network, and this is the Melanology Show. I'm your host, Dr. Jewel, and my fabulous co-host, Dr. T. Owens Moore, and I are here on the Melanology Show. So, Dr. Moore, now we've talked about on this show, endarkenment, and that endarkenment really means that the light is being held within the matter when we look upon it. It's not really black, but it's full of light. It's just not reflecting anything to us. 
We've talked about the pineal gland and its interaction in daytime, nighttime cycles relative to the substances that you were talking about last week, which are the melanocortins. And, you know, I think the melanocortins are so interesting, and I wanted our listening audience to really pay attention. It's important that the language that we're using, epinephrine, norepinephrine, melanocortins, et cetera, that they begin to write these names down because even though they think that we're talking about science, we really are not talking about science, science per se, because they are constantly being bombarded with these substances, but they are packaged and labeled in such a way that they don't recognize it. And that's what's so humorous to you and I is because all of these people that are taking Cialis and Extends and um, what's the other one, um, Viagra, and now they're just getting ready to release most likely a melanocortin for women so that women can become more spontaneously orgasmic. All of this is directly related to these hormones, melanocortins, as well as directly affecting our pineal pituitary gland, but they all are orchestrated by the melanin biopolymer. So we're constantly dealing with melanin all the time, and most people are still trying to think that, you know, this is just a hair, skin, and an eye color issue. They have no idea that it is a melanin biopolymer that is controlling all of the major reactions in their body. This is one of the greatest secrets that has been repressed in science that is now being told by you and I in the 21st century. And this is a big blow-up because people have been bombarded with this their entire life. They just didn't know that. For example, what happens, and I'm concerned about that, with all these people taking Viagra and they need Cialis and they need Extends, they're not telling these individuals that what that's showing is that your pineal gland, your pituitary gland now is becoming significantly dysfunctional, right. probably calcific, which means that not only are you losing your capacity to have erections and to be orgasmic, but then that means a lot of other uh, important tissue and chemical reactions to sustain healthy tissue functioning are also slowing down or actually beginning to cease. Yeah, and this melanology hour is creating hot topics because the reality is that <laughs> really, I mean... No pun intended, huh? Uh, <laughs> You're too funny. Yeah, because, I mean, the whole reality of when you left before the station break, you mentioned about us trying to capture time. Well, if you right. look at the reality of science today, okay, melanocortins aren't really in the drugs like the Viagra or the Zinfandel. It's actually something used now to co-administer with it. And if you look at Journal of, Neuro of Urology, 2005, mm -hmm. they mm -hmm. have an article on co-administration of low doses of intranasal, this, this company out of uh, New Jersey called Paladin, mm -hmm. they created mm -hmm. this drug, and they call it PT-141. It's actually a melanocortin receptor agonist, so it stimulates the receptors for melanocortin. They did it in mm -hmm. conjunction with sildenafil which is the mm -hmm. active salt that's in Viagra to men with mm -hmm. erectile dysfunction. And they noticed that, yes, the co-administration helped out much better than those receiving placebo, just, just nothing in the nasal spray. So mm -hmm. the, the pharmaceutical companies are pursuing it, that is, the this erectile dysfunction uh, area, by now enhancing it with the melanocortin. So it's not like the melanocortin is actually in it. But when we deal with this,
issue of time. You've heard of the South American Amazon Amazonian shamans drinking yes. a drink called Ayahuasca. A Y A H U A S C A. Ayahuasca. Never heard of that. Mm-mm. Okay. Spell it again, please. Ayahuasca. A Y A H U A S C A. So they were drinking this this substance to. What is it? Is it a plant, a mushroom, or? Uh, coming from a vine. I mean, they you know how. So it's a plant. Okay. Yeah, an extract, and they you know concoct a formula and they drink it. Uh-huh. They use it for purposes of divination. I mean. Oh, okay. So we go midbrain now, huh? Midbrain, pretty much, yeah, because that's what the pineal gland is. Right. But it has, uh-huh. it has, it's more powerful than the stuff you see in mescaline. Okay. And so uh-huh. what it what it contains is uh, let's see, penalines, harmaline, that's the same thing in the right. pineal gland. Uh huh. But right. what happens is these people are taking it, and from anthropological evidence, because people are going to talk to the people, they're having subjective experiences of sensations of flying, out-of-body mm-hmm. experience. Mm-hmm. They can also learn about things, about people and events that are removed from time or space. Mm-hmm. So, so you're saying they can see in the future? Absolutely. So what they're doing, though, is they're using a element in nature to enhance what they already have in the body. Mm-hmm. When we hear about Native Americans of the land using the peace pipe and smoking the pipe, well, they're, they're ingesting these compounds that are allowing them to do that, have out-of-body mm-hmm. experiences. Now, wouldn't it be interesting to really look at the um, chemical structure of this uh, ayahuasca and compare that to the notorious LSD? Because what you just described is, you know, what Timothy Leary wrote about in his writings, and he was a very prolific writer. I was so surprised about neurodevelopment, neuroevolution, and the capacity to connect the dots where past, present, and future could be seen simultaneously under this influence. And, you know, I shared with you a book that I happened to come into contact with Dr. Collins, where he finally admitted that LSD had been used by many governments for long periods of time to do extensive work on the effects of and how to access areas of the brain that presently they did not have any understanding as to how we could get to these particular areas. So I think that's really interesting. Were you ready for Uh, that? Again. In 1968 studies, Scott Weiner, W-I-E-N-E-R, LSD is measured in the brain. It turns out that it concentrates mostly in the pineal and pituitary (laughs) gland. Okay, see, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Secondarily, in the limbic system, Mm -hmm. structures such as the hippocampus, amygdala, Uh and fornix, and thoroughly in the hypothalamus, all those areas dealing with emotion. Yes, so it's a midbrain. It uh, knocks on the door and opens the midbrain. That's more than midbrain. That's forebrain. That's uh, temporal lobe. That's everywhere. Okay, yeah, that's true. It is. Okay, so that's my uh, seven circuits here. That's the key to the seven circuits. However... What I think is very interesting is is that now since you talk about the fact, okay, that the brain itself on its own merit does make LSD in a very low concentration. Is that what you're saying? We could probably say something like that because we could also say it makes marijuana do or THC because we have receptors. Yeah, tetrahydrocannabinol. Yeah, okay, want, so the key... want to say it like that, but I don't say it like that. Okay, but the, but the key is is that we know that these cells in the brain under unique circumstances, and we still are not clear about what those circumstances are where we can get the same response 
on a continuous and a regular basis in a large group of people that those same neurons that do this basic work that we think is awareness as we know it can actually be stimulated. Is it a particular frequency of light, a particular wavelength that has to happen? Is it a triad, a quad, ad, a pentabula of segments of the brain that have to be stimulated uniformly and uh, at the same time coordinated that when all of their neurochemistry goes out into the circuitry that it now triggers or the recombination of the Chemicals, the neuropeptides that are made now actually dimer. Would it be a dimer or shimmeristic or what type of reaction that they now produce a U, a LSD kind of effect? Is that what happens? And, and well, these some of the ancient secrets that were known that we still have not been able to translate yet? Well, more than likely that's how the shamans and the ancients used these right. medicinal properties in a, in a way mm-hmm. to elevate consciousness. That was the reason why today is so much... You know, the drug cultures has exploited the use of external agents to, you know, elevate people's minds. But we have to just remember, LSD is something created in the lab, lysergic acid diethylamide. So even though right. it's concentrated in the pineal, what we're saying is that LSD looks just like the chemical that the pineal produces. What is that? Exactly. So I wouldn't expect okay. that the brain produces LSD. It's just that those receptors in that location are able to absorb that chemical that's circulating in the body. Just like we say with marijuana, we have those receptors called anandamide receptors that actually can take on THC. I'm not saying our body produces marijuana per se, but it has the chemicals that are responsive to the same way marijuana affects the brain. Right. Well, let's go back because I think this is extremely important, and our fabulous listeners, I really want you to get this because you have to remember now, all scientists start out the same way as Every other human does. We have to be born and we have to grow up and be potty trained and we have to learn how to read and write and count. So I do not want you at all to think that this conversation that we're having is something that you are not in any way capable of understanding. And this is what the Jewel Network is about because we're very concerned that there has been a small population of individuals who have pursued this particular methodology of observing and defining these observations, and we call this science, but it is information that everyone experiences and everyone should have a really clear understanding about because there's been a huge chasm that has been created in our society where the scientists are seen as one group of people and then there's the regular people. And that chasm has to basically be bridged intensely because all this information that we are sharing with you is about you. And when you're not able to really understand and grasp how incredibly awesome you are created, it's very easy for you to take it for granted. It's very easy for you to basically become even frightened of your own self, of your own capabilities. So we bring the sciences to you, we bring the science of life to you so that you can begin to recapture all of this information that's been discovered. It's just been put into a language that if you listen very carefully, keep your pens and pencils out, et cetera, and become familiar with these terms that we're sharing with you, the anatomical locations that correlate with these terms, et cetera, you'll be able to go to 
any library to go to any scientific article and be able to extrapolate the basic information that you need and you should because all this information is collections of observations about you. And you must know this now because, as I said, you're being sold products that literally indicate that there's a large population of individuals who are undergoing or have undergone a degenerative process. They're not being treated. They're not being told that, oh, what we really should do is reassess looking at your <clears throat> pineal function, et cetera. It's like, okay, we've got this large population of people. They're just because of how you've thought and how you've lived, et cetera, that, you know, now you're diminishing in your level of health and functioning. So, you know, good. We can sell you this product. And now, 15 or 20 years later, is there going to be further side effects because you were not diagnosed and treated for this diminution in your normal biological functioning. And you'll never know this about yourself if you don't find a continuous resource that will give you the information about how you've been designed to function so that you can see for yourself that if you're not there or that you know that you're, quote, losing it, that you can begin to get help or help yourself because you understand this language that Dr. Moore and I are discussing with you so that you can bring a cessation to the decline or the alteration in functioning that you're seeing that is not normal. See, this is why we're giving you the science of life because your tissues are immortal. We know that. We've got human tissues and labs and the people whose body it came from have been dead. But why are their tissues living in laboratory environments, in other people, et cetera, which says from the beginning that the tissues were not the issue. So that's a whole different discussion, but we want you to understand that do not ever think again that you don't understand what we're saying. You do if you listen, pay attention attentively because we're talking about you. This is your information. So, Dr. Moore. Well, you passed over a black history moment. You mentioned about the immortal spells. <laughs> you didn't tell the audience about Henrietta Lacks, who she was. Oh, well, you know, well, see, okay, you go ahead and do that because I've talked about her in detail, but not on the Melanology Show, and you're right. They do deserve to hear the story, so give it to them, Doc. Well, it's a sister who had a, a form of cancer, and she went for treatment and passed away, but the doctors used her cells when she was gone and dead and not here, and they used their cells in the lab, and her cells today are used in a variety of biological experimentation. Her her cells are used for a lot of drug, you know, therapies and stuff, but they're called HeLa cells. So somebody hearing about HeLa cells doesn't know that it relates to this sister named Henrietta Lacks. And there's been recent books that have been uh, written about her, and her family is now just finding out about this. It's really sad you think about the exploitation of us. And as I mentioned that, and I talked earlier about this issue of the melanology hour spanning time, I went back to South America and the shamans. I talked about current day research in some pharmaceutical firm or lab up in New Jersey. The point is that many of these studies that are being done now have no no black participants. They're being tested on lighter skin or white participants, which means if you're dealing with melanocortin and then they don't maybe have as many functioning systems that need melanocortins, you're going to get different results, which means, again, but right. us not well, being... Well, see, that's important, Doctor, to, uh, you know, and I see there you go again. So we are we're, we're always running into these <laughs> statements here that we, we, we get uh, a huge spike in our brain function that we have to speak on. And that 
statement that you just made, I, we really have to speak on because uh, in other works that I'm creating, it's very, very clear that melanin is the most important molecule in the life of the human being. All humans are melanin dependent. So as Dr. Morris just said, is that doing these tests and making these observations on individuals who in their skin and hair color and eye color appear to be melanin recessive are still very much melanin dominant in the interstructure of the cells. Every chromosome, every nucleus in a melanin recessive individual's body has to have melanin because otherwise the mutational rate of their genetic information would occur so intensely and it would be so abstract and random that the individuals could not hold on to their avatar. They would die very early in life. So even though they don't have a lot of active melanin in the skin, which makes them appear to be very pale, very light-colored hair, because there's not a lot of melanin in the hair, et cetera, they still have melanin on the inside of their body. So as I have said, if you're white on the outside, you're still black on the inside. If you're yellow on the outside, you're still black on the inside. If you are red on the inside, you are still black on the, excuse me, red on the outside, you're still black on the inside. If you're brown on the outside, you're still black on the inside. And if you're black on the outside, you're black on the inside. So this is why... Dr. Moore and I know that the standard of care that is being offered in the Western world is not adequate as a universal standard for humans because the interaction and the activity of melanin varies with the phenotypic presentation of the human. So if you are stalk white on the outside, you know, with very almost white hair, Pale blue eyes, yes, you are still melanin dependent. However, the amount of melanin and all of its reactions are obviously not going to have the same concentration, may not have the same level of activity. Some reactions of melanin may not even occur relative to someone who is navy blue black. So therefore, to take the standard measurements of chemical analysis of a melanin recessive individual and then establish a hospital in equatorial Africa treating individuals who are navy blue black is totally inappropriate because those measurements do not reflect the true activity of the equatorial individuals who are being measured and asked to reproduce the standards that were never established for the equatorial individual. Is that correct, Dr. Moore? Sounds, sounds legitimate to me, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I, just, I think it's very important that, um, that that is a problem that no one has ever asked the standard medical institutions to address is that, you know, if you think it's justifiable. Yeah, well, yeah, because, but, and so therefore, to protect humanity, humanity then must know, and as I've said for years, they must demand and ask their health care provider, 
what is the standard that is being used to determine whether I really do have a problem or not. I've had laboratory work, Dr. Moore, sent to me by patients, and the laboratory work says right across the front of it that the standard is a Caucasian female, weight so-and-so, age group so-and-so, and here the individual is navy blue black. Standard, right. And I'm like, Dangerous. and they made you pay for this? Dangerous. And they're right. like, oh, yeah. I was like, well, it says right here that the test really has nothing to do with you because the standard that they're using, obviously, when you look upon you, you can see that you're not in that collection of individuals. So how could they have charged you for this, and how could they even comment that this has any relevance to you at all? Where's the standard that shows that this is a melanin-dominant female in this age group? And then now we can talk about whether you are really having an osteoporotic uh, event happening in your skeletal system. It can't be. But because you, as my fabulous listening audience, don't know this information that's available, and obviously it's not being taught in the medical schools, it's not being taught in the uh, graduate research-level institutions, Dr. Moore and I, from our own observations in a comparison analysis of looking at the data that was printed way before we were even born and looking at the observations, we know that it just does not add up and it has not been stated as such and it has not been corrected in the institutions that are serving all of these different groups of individuals who have definite different metabolic standards. And let's roll with that comment, focusing on our pineal and looking at some continued problems with things like tanning, which don't really necessarily uh, involve darker-skinned people, but it involves those who are lighter trying to be darker. If you think about the pineal, basically it starts to calcify during the uh, puberty years. It it starts to crystallize, which means it's changing its output. Well, we know that melatonin is being produced at nighttime and it's having an increase on uh, or impact on menstruation. Uh, We know a woman goes through a 28-day cycle, so it's going to have an impact on the whole estrus cycle for a woman. We know that in animals, melatonin can affect reproduction by if it's being released more in the winter months, the animals aren't going to produce as much. What was real interesting is that this issue of light that you presented earlier. Now, we don't really know the exact wavelength intensity of light that influences the pineal and its biosynthesis in humans. But there is some relationship to colors because we know that red light in the past, in ancient times, Babylon, women in India, they wear red for a reason. Animals kept in red light, you know, these nocturnal animals, they show increased gonadal development under red light, not in green. And that sends us to, you know, how we do it in the hood, the blue lights in the basement house party. (laughs) (laughs) He's funny. (laughs) I wonder why we have blue lights in the basement when we have a house party. So what does that do to the sexual activity of folks in Right. Does it produce a hypnagogic state or some type of psychological phenomena that makes people in tune, be in tune with one another? Well, we know that in psychic experiments, red does do that, but what does blue do? So that's interesting as we just talked about this impact of the environment on our bodies. The issue of tanning is real important because we have a dramatic increase in cancer in the human population now. And this week, there were studies out about why skin cancer is on the rise, and the bottom line is from tanning salon. So in tanning salons, people feel really good about the uh, experience, and they then become addicted to it. Well, you know that ultraviolet radiation destroys the DNA cells, and our melanin helps to protect from the damage. 
Okay, so, but da, 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 Doc, i got to just make a mm-hmm. little insert right there okay. because the key here is, okay, and this is what I've discovered. This is part more of the what you call the Pukram phenomena. Mm-hmm. Is that what you said it was? Okay. Is that when individuals have not been taught how to modulate their DNA, turn on the genes or turn off the genes to allow them to adapt to the environment that they choose to interact in, the unknowing, or should I say the unpreparedness of the individual to interact in that environment then creates repetitive symptoms that reflect that you are inadequate as you perceive yourself to be right now to have this experience. So what am I saying? I'm saying then that we know for a fact that melanin recessive individuals have just as many melanocytes in their skin as navy blue black melanated individuals. However, we know that there is a phenomenon. It's not that they don't have enough melanocytes, but there is a cascade of reactions that are not happening to allow those melanocytes to produce enough melanin and melanin that actually is, how can I say, expanded to occupy the melanocyte so that the skin is protected. Now, why do they not have the cascade reactions that are happening? And, of course, you've written about that. I have. But we go to the bottom line. The genes that are responsible for that cascade are either really turned down or are totally inactive. And we know for a fact that states of consciousness will turn genes on they will turn genes off. And these individuals have not been taught how to be able to turn the genes on to have these experiences that they want. So, you know, they have this whole pharmaceutical component of what's known as gene therapy, and that's what they're selling to people on the TV, but they haven't ever mentioned to the fact that everybody can actually communicate with and turn on and off their genes, and they do it anyway, especially when they have very intense reactions to an experience, they will actually shut genes on or shut them off or turn them on. And this is a phenomenon where the lack of information about the workings of a human body, of an avatar, not being taught in a culture causes this kind of symptomatology. And that's what you're talking about. This is what we're talking about, that these individuals are ignorant of what they need to do intrinsically. That means within their own tissues to be able to have the experience of tolerating large amounts of sunlight and to not allow that to be a problem to their bodies. Would you like to make a statement now before I go into this tanning discussion? Yes, I would. Again, you are listening to The Melanology Show hosted by Dr. Jewel, myself, and co-hosted by Dr. T. Owens Moore on the Jewel Network. So, Dr. Moore, please. So you mentioned Avatar again, and I don't know if the audience has seen the movie yet, but within the Avatar they had to sit down and like a, you could look at like a tanning bed as they were going right. through the process to get to the next, where they're supposed to be in Pandora. So those who are going through the tanning bed becomes addictive to them. So science is trying to figure out why. But it's kind of simple for us to understand that because when the body produces the hormone that initiates tanning, it also produces the secondary hormones like endorphins. And what are endorphins? Endorphins are chemicals that transmit feelings of pleasure and happiness. So in effect, exposure to, you know, ultraviolet radiation gets tanning bed users high. So they become addicted to doing that. 
And over the time, they keep doing it. Guess what? You're burning your skin cells out, causing the skin to be abnormal. Therefore, you develop the DNA problems. Therefore, you what? Develop cancer. So there's studies being conducted where they gave, you know, volunteers uh, endorphin-blocking chemicals before they got into the tanning bed, and they, they just aimed to study what would be the effects. And essentially, the frequent tanning salon customers would enjoy the experience as much if their bodies didn't produce endorphins. So they didn't. So basically, the endorphins become this molecule that's assisting in making the people feel good, and it's related to this issue of light stimulating the body. Now, most of the people that are going through this not task, but this uh, procedure are, you know, probably white female, not black or darker color because they would not need to be tanned. But you just think about the power of the chemicals being initiated from light having an impact on the entire body. Okay, well, it says something right here. It says when nerve impulses reach the spinal cord, endorphins mm-hmm. are released, which prevent nerve cells from releasing more pain signals. Immediately after injury, endorphins allow animals to feel a sense of power and control over themselves that allows them to persist with activity for an extended period of time. Is that true? Yes. I mean, that's what, if you look at the word and break it down, endorphins, endo, endogenous morphine. So people who are heroin addicts or people who are, you know, stuck on morphine, opiates, it gives them a sense of well-being, euphoric response. It's just sends them to oblivion. Well, how does that happen? Because those chemicals are impacting the natural molecules in our body that offset pain, which are endorphins. So that's your endogenous morphine. All right. Multiple, so. multiple receptors for that also. Okay. So now, can you connect the dots with this? So are you saying that outright melanin produces morphine through a cascade of interactions through specific cells? No. What we're saying is that the gigantic molecule called pro-opium melanocortin, okay. a gigantic molecule which contains like almost 250 amino acids. As you break it down and cleave it, within it are multiple melanocortins. One of okay. those melanocortins would be endorphin. Also, in that same large molecule would be melanocyte-stimulating hormone. So we know that ACTH is involved. We have corticotrophic-releasing hormone. All these different neuropeptides that we talked about last week those neuropeptides are in that large molecule. Some of them deal with darkness and making pigmentation. Some of them have effects on mood and pain, but they're all coming from the same molecule, propiomelanocortin. That's what we're saying. Okay. So propiomelanocortin is made primarily where, Doc? Propiomelanocortin basically in the cellular structure of multiple cells within our body. It's in our skin, brain cells, and organs in our body. It's everywhere. If you think how, I think I talked about that last week, and I have it in the book, that we think about these stress hormones being created from our brain to our internal organs like adrenal glands, but those same chemicals are found and produced in the skin. So our skin is the largest organ in the body, but it also contains the same things that the brain makes. You asked me to talk a little about something called neuropeptide Y, right. and you said endorphins too, so if we talk about endorphins, well, Neuropeptide Y, a gouty peptide. You have a lot of peptides that are produced in the stomach. Rather than say stomach. Oh, say that again. Say that. You should scream that out. That a lot of neuropeptides are made in where now? The gut. G-U-T. So isn't that interesting? Are you saying that we have a brain in the gut? You mean you didn't listen to the program last week? (laughs) Well, yeah, I did. But I know that we... Well, I'm just... I want you to comment on it. I want you to also remember as we... Talk to our audience that, yes, you can have a gut feeling on something, and it means something. 
because the same peptides that are being produced in the brain are there in the stomach. One of them is called CCK, cholecystokinin. One's called neuropeptide Y. Some are called melanocortins. Mm. So you have a whole industry dealing with diet medications that focus on some of these neuropeptides. So this issue of neuropeptides now also comes into play with genetics and cultural lines because there is a reason why maybe black women do become a little bit more larger than other ethnic groups as age comes about and it's because of those neuropeptides, like leptin, like ghrelin. Studies have been done that show different levels of them when people are under stress when you compare, let's say, Caucasian to African women. So the the neuropeptides in the stomach become very critical in terms of controlling behavior, something that we uh, overlook very often. Now let's go back. Let's draw the dot here because if you're saying that leptin production is increased in melanin-dominant women who are under lots of stress, which then would allow them to store more fat or right. because they stay in what's now perceived as a stressful state. So therefore, rather than burning up the fat that they, or should I say, rather than utilizing the energy in the form of nutrients that they're consuming, the stressful state causes that to be stored, thinking that it may be in a position at some later date where there may not be enough food, et cetera. Is that what you're saying? Well, you walk through it in a way that can be explained like that, and that I'm not an expert in the area. I'm dealing with the reality of people being pigmented, containing peptides that have a relationship to altering the body's physiology. So those who are more pigmented are going to be what more impacted by the changes in the neuropeptide. So the studies are shown and are there for multiple types of neuropeptides produced in the gut. You know, again, we're looking at this in so many different ways. That's why I say as the nighttime scientist, I'm looking at the fact we have melanocytes that are very active. They're producing a lot of melanin. So, therefore, that means they have greater in-capillary development. They also have greater neurologic innervation because now for every cell there's a nerve there's a lymphatic vessel, there is an artery and a vein for every cell. So if you have cell that is really very active, then that artery, vein, that nerve, etc., also is very active to accommodate the metabolism of the cell. So with this ex- increased production of melanin, which means that all of these accompanying structures, artery, nerve, vein, lymphatic uh, uh, vessel, are also now increased in activity that this exo, what I call brain, external brain in the skin, obviously has a heightened ability to sense frequencies of light and thought is light that may not be necessarily uh, supportive of that organism, and that organism is sensing this and responding in a much more heightened capacity. Therefore, increased leptin production, the whole bit, the increase in size, et cetera. Is that what you're saying? Yes, as a breaking down physiologically, but you can also look at it as African people. People of African descent on the woman's side are more spiritual than most. You now have other elevations in the person's experience. There's some things that you go through psychically and spiritually that I, as a male, would not be able to experience. So you then have much more of an elevation. You know, you're the mother of the earth. So by you having more receptivity to the chemicals that are circulating in your body, beyond the physiological explanation you just gave, 
it also impacts those other components of being more spiritually in tune with nature and the environment. So are you saying that this is a phenomenon because I have a magnetic core that is uh, heightened in its activity, my uterus versus your prostate? Or are you saying that it is because of the estrogens that I make as opposed to the level of testosterone oh. versus the level of testosterone you make versus the level of estrogen that you make that uh, allows me to have this heightened spirituality? Well, I'm going beyond the steroid hormones. I'm going okay. to these other neuropeptides we just talked about that can have an impact on what geomagnetism. Okay. Making you more in tune to the environment. That's what I'm saying. It's not the steroidal piece where, you know, yeah, testosterone makes the male, estrogen makes the female. No, we're talking about the elements that can modulate your capacity to be what it is to be a female and a woman that absorbs and takes in because you have a womb versus a male that has a penis that releases and lets go. So there's a reality to a person's physiology that then explains how they then function in society. If you look okay, at but now, ooh, okay, now, see, you've gone into the Amazon mm-hmm. rainforest on this. Okay. <laughs> and, and I describe it like that because nobody really knows what's in the Amazon rainforest. All they know right. is that when they go in there, this is going to be a serious experience here because we don't know all the animals and whatever else. And so since you've gone into the Amazon rainforest here, I have to then throw this out as a huge vine that has just swung down before you. And it's like we know for a fact that at the level of the stomach, stomach, spleen, pancreas, there is no dissimilarities between the male and the female avatar. Right. So, therefore, female and male avatar now become uh, exactly the same at the level of the stomach, which when we talk about the endocrine system and then we go into the more metaphysical description, would be the solar plexus. Once we get to the actual heart, et cetera, everything is the same and synonymous. So therefore, I'm saying to you then, why would you then ascribe that women would be necessarily a particular way versus men when, if the awareness of the individual, now see, this is a Tibetan conversation now, okay, the awareness now develops the corresponding aspect of the brain relative to these critical sites of major brain function because, as you know, there's also a heart brain as well as a gut brain. So if we've activated this heart brain extensively, that really throws us into what is generally described as a androgynous reality. And so, therefore, the capacity to modulate electromagnetic frequencies, magnetic vortexes, et cetera, now become uniform. So then really what happens, and see, this is why I think this is so important, because here we are in the 21st century. We are space stations in outer space. We're going to all these other different uh, environments here, and we still are little teeny babies just handling the one that we've originated upon. Because what are the chemical studies? What does the pineal gland do? What does the hypothalamus do? Where are the other areas of the brain that this person has now activated who literally has proclaimed that they are androgynous? Do they have a whole different blood chemistry? Do we have photometric scans of their brain? Is the pineal gland increased in size or decreased in size? All of these different things because this is why, for example, that gentleman who presented himself to the hospital 
and proclaimed that he hadn't eaten since he was 12 years old, and they kept him in the hospital for over two weeks. He never urinated. He never defecated. He never ate one drop of anything, no water, and he did not sleep exorbitantly. He was up and active. They kept cameras on him 24-7. They put him in a room where there was no toilet since he claimed that he didn't need to use one, and so they couldn't find any excrements, no moisture on the floor, no soiling of his clothes. And there are many individuals who are like that that are finally coming forward to allow what humanity thinks is normal to regauge what is really normal for us. So, see, that's what I'm saying. What does the blood chemistry look like for these individuals? I mean, you know, they, he allowed them to take his blood, et cetera. And there have been people over the years, over the centuries that were like this, but they recognized that their capacity to function at this level was so um, literally appalling to the general public, so threatening, frightening, that they just basically live indefinitely amongst themselves. But because now that this is the 21st century and all things have to be revealed to the extent that the individual's brain can perceive it, all these phenomena are coming forth. And this is why I'm saying that science has to make a decision. Are we just going to stay ignorant and just accept our little concepts that we've discovered over the last two centuries as how it is? Or what are we going to do with all of this incredible phenomena? And most of all, how do we then actually tell the world? Because it's all about them. And so I'm just saying that, you know, when we've got people who have been able to literally turn on melanin, they've, this, these individuals have turned on melanin where they are able to absorb light and just like the leaf on a plant, photosynthesize and create all of the nutrients that they need is a phenomenal uh, reality here. And so it's like, okay, when we know that this capacity exists, and these individuals, I'll tell you, they were born from a female, they had a mother and father, et cetera, but they had a shift in their awareness in their brain. They will tell you that. That's why they keep saying that, you know, I made this decision, this is how I am now, because I made this decision so thoroughly in my brain that this is what I shifted into and this is my new capability. So have they done, and I'm sure they, on this gentleman they did, they did a, uh, a DNA screen on him, et cetera, and it's going to be exciting to see what genes of his they discover and what are turned on and what are turned off. So um, this is why, you know, individuals like you, Dr. Moore, who have contributed all of this work to helping individuals understand the basic structural processes and interactions that they have been built upon, it's very important for them to understand at the level that we're discussing what's happening because not, it's not even in the, in the closet anymore. Standing at the wings are these individuals coming out and actually now even, you know, challenging what we're talking about is standard because they showed us that they have bumped themselves up to a whole new level of existence that, again, is predicated on the functioning of melanin. Let me provide some uniformity to uh, something you asked earlier about the mm -hmm. male and female so we can yeah. get out of the rain for us. I don't want to think we're, we're <laughs> clouding as we open the door to a new way of looking. If you think about people who meditate, and as you do the balancing program,
meditating, the proper way to breathe is through the diaphragm first and then out through the nostrils. So what's happening when you do that, the vagus nerve, cranial nerve 10, is innervating all those organs down there in the diaphragm area. It's the largest nerve coming from the brain that innervates all your organs. So when you're breathing properly, the calm feeling after breathing properly during the meditation, that vagus nerve sending impulses up to the brain. Okay, it's coming down from the stomach area also. So that's uniform in both male and female. So inside, yes, the internal dynamics are the same. It's the chemistry that then becomes different between male and female. Mm -hmm. And that is then the reason why we don't use the female animals in a lot of the experiments, because those hormones mess up the experiments. So with women having... Oh, now, wait, wait, wait. Okay, nope, you're going now. to finish this yeah. one, because I want to make sure <laughs> I'm saying the neuropeptides that are being released that are in everybody may have more of an effect within a woman because of the different circulating levels of hormones that then impact and modulate how they're responding to it. So everybody has those hormones, but we're seeing differences in how the body's responding to it. And the only reason we know about leptin as an issue because we had leptin-deficient mice that became very obese. So from the animal studies, that led into looking at humans. So that's what I wanted to emphasize, that, that neuroanatomically and physically inside, yeah, the same, but the chemistry is different. Now you can respond to that if you would like to. Okay, well, um, the nighttime scientist in me is... Uh, looking at this picture, and we're like, okay, um, of course, that is correct. Uh, well, let me say no. That is an accurate observation, but I keep reflecting on these individuals who have now been able to obviously, based on your definition, change their chemical composition, and they've done this by obviously activating other areas of the brain that modern neuroanatomists have not really paid much attention to or didn't know much about and have totally flipped the script on the capabilities of what human tissue can do. And so when you look at these individuals, okay, they don't necessarily proclaim that they are um, androgynous. However, their awareness, as I've seen from the writings, et cetera, and the things that they've said about themselves, they definitely no longer necessarily assign a gender to themselves other than the fact that, you know, it was a gender assignment based on the anatomical aspect of their body. But their sensitivity, their capacity to nurture, uh, their interest in all areas of life uh, even supersedes most females and males. Okay, so that's what I'm saying is that, you know, there's just so much we don't know and this is just a fabulous time in the evolution of humanity to recognize that. And I was just, you know, sharing this with a friend that, you know, this is just a great time to really recognize and to make a choice. Okay, how can we, you know, entertain death and dying when we admit and that we know there's so much that we don't know? There's so much that we don't know. There's so much to discover about ourselves, which means obviously our environment, where do you have time to even contemplate dying knowing that you don't even know what's really going on yet? Because as we've talked about in um, other services and teachings that uh, the Jewel Network offers, that if you are thinking about something, then that's what you're focusing on, and that's what is going to actually collapse quantum particles into creating a reality for you. So if you're not thinking about something, the capacity for you to have that reality is very slim and literally almost impossible if 
it is a thought that you know that you've never had in your life. You don't have the reality because you have not actually collapsed wave light forms, quantum particles to collapse in that geometric formation in your behalf. So knowing that all of these are potentials and, you know, what would it be like to be here, you know, 200, 300, 400, 500 years, we know that obviously life forms that appear to be less intelligent than us accomplish this at the drop of a hat. So, you know, how can that be? So I, I think that, you know, understanding that these also are melanated forms, what does their form of melanin pigment play in all of this, et cetera, are huge questions that need to be uh, investigated. But we do know for sure is that everyone, every human being is melanin dominant. We are here sharing the fabulous, incredible knowledge that we know about this very important and strategic molecule in our life known as melanin. Well, Dr. Moore, we don't have a lot of time, and, you know, I really want to just be quiet now and, you know, let you finish out because, you know, this is an important topic and, you know, you're a master at having really unraveled the basics of what in the past has been taught to be a very complicated subject on the neurophysiology of the pineal gland. Do you have anything else you want to share with us about that, just so everybody can get the basics before we move on to another area of the brain next week? Um, the reality is it's a it's an organ that's up there in the brain that has not received a whole lot of attention. Um, we've heard about it certainly for centuries, about it being the seat of the soul. But we know through Western science, soul is complicated terminology for Western scientists. So what does that really mean? So we even speak of spirituality. What does that really mean in Western science? Because you can't, some people can't measure the soul or measure the spirit. So the European mind or Western thinking, if you can't measure it, it doesn't exist. So we now get into a whole other level of psychic phenomena that our bodies can produce, and the key source in the brain that is associated with producing psychic phenomena is the pineal gland. So for us to understand it as a very important organ, we have to just be aware that it is responsive to the outside world. That's why we call it a phototransducer. It changes our understanding of light. It transduces the element of light into something that the body can recognize. So it's really functioning as a third eye. It has some of the same chemicals that are there in the eyes that are there in the pineal gland. The receptors look similar. You can also find melatonin in the eye. That's very powerful to think about. So as a chemical melatonin being secreted primarily at nighttime does a, has a wide range of influences, but one of them is to have an impact on melanin. So we talked about melatonin. We talked about melanin. We also mentioned the term called mel- melanin or melanocortin. So melanocortins are the smaller molecules that may even be in the molecule of melanin. So for our audience, melatonin, melanin, melanocortins, all those are different topics but related to the same subject. And we as African-centered scientists must be at the forefront of redefining our understanding of these elements because a lot of the people that are doing the studies are not us and they're doing it on people who are not melanated, which means you're getting a whole different result. So during the melanology hour, we're making it uh, aware or making our audience aware that there's a whole other level of research out there that we could provide by having us being the authors of the information. Once that's done, we have a new way of looking at the world. That's how I view it. Talk about the brain. We think of um, new studies now talking about personality being found in the brain. Well, 
pineal gland, we talked about it being calcified or becoming crystallized over time. And it's a term that, you know, people who don't think properly call them boneheads. So why is that? Is it because the pineal gland becomes calcified, hardened, and then no longer functions? Therefore, the thinking is not as well anymore. We can't say that spirituality in the soul goes away because the pineal gland becomes calcified because it still may produce chemicals in it, but not as much. Maybe well, Dr. <laughs> Dr. Moore, I think that's important that you should... Uh definitely return back to that statement. I mean, did everybody get that? I think that's a wonderful uh, literary joke here. Uh, But people didn't really understand the implications of what that really meant to be called a bonehead. Uh Well, people who have joints in their body, the arm, the elbow, knees, uh, sometimes you can get calcium deposits in those joints and your knees crack, elbows crack, you hear that cracking sign in your joints. Well, that's calcium deposits developing. Well, think about soft tissue. Guess what? Soft tissue can develop calcium deposits. One of those soft tissue organs would be the pineal gland. So as it becomes hardened over time, there may be a decrease in a person's sensitivity to maybe spiritual things. In that context, well, right. yeah, in that context so, that's why we say bonehead. Exactly. And so, you know, it was taken as an individual who wasn't able to concentrate, wasn't really paying attention, or who appeared to be very rigid in their thinking. But literally what was being described was the uh, identification of the onset of a degenerative process. Right. And uh, that that's phenomenal, that phenomenal that we use a lot of these common terms not recognizing that we are really describing an early symptom based on behavior of a degenerative process and it's kind of laughed off or whatever else, et cetera, but it's not really treated. And so now, you know, no pun intended, but actually, factually, we've got millions of boneheads. Right. Because if that was not the case, then obviously Viagra wouldn't be able to have 10 million customers, as I think they talk about, uh, or it extends. 10 million customers have tried their products and are using it every day because that is the reason why they need the extends, okay, the melatonin um, primers here, excuse me, melanocortin primers, because they are or have become a bonehead. Is that correct? Yeah, and that's a way of looking at it. And using the melanocortin primer as a term is very important as you uh, are now you know, learning about melanocortins and their function. Again, they're being used as supplements to go along with some of these uh, erectile dysfunction drugs, which just sheds a, a lot of light on the reality of darkness of the penis and its reception to chemicals in the body to make it do what it's supposed to do. Men have erections in the morning, you're having a situation where the melatonin is at its highest circulation, which means those melanocortin receptors are being stimulated, which means that organ is then having an impact or being influenced, that is. Okay, now, that is such an important statement, Dr. Moore. I really want you to understand that. You know, years ago I did some workshops on... uh, sexuality because so many people are having issues around understanding normal physiological responses versus pathology, et cetera, versus those that are conjured up from emotional states. And, you know, many men had really uh, voiced a um, dislike or uh, an emotional uh, dissatisfaction or being dismayed about the fact that they would wake up in the morning having these kind of erections. So I don't know if that comes from, you know, indoctrination they may have gotten from their religious uh, trainings, et cetera, but just the fact that, and this is 
what I said years ago, that because of the level of hormones that are in the system and the tissues that respond to that, that is a normal physiological response and in, sh- and in no way should be considered as pathologic or perverted or something that a person should be ashamed of, et cetera. But so many people have been crippled by this, and perhaps wow. maybe their parents have done this to them because in their own ignore rants and, you know, inappropriate indoctrination that this is wrong or whatever, so many teenagers have been, you know, totally uh, orientated to really have issues about normal physiological mechanisms. So this is a very common symptom that, you know, distorts the perception that men may have about themselves. And definitely we know for women, depending upon the culture and one of the cultural stigmas that has happened to melanin-dominant women who are descendants from post-slaves in America and in the Caribbean is that the onset of menstruation, which is a normal physiological process as a result of the maturity of the reproductive organs, are psychologically impaired and literally impaled about accepting this as a fabulous transformation in a maturing body that heralds a huge accomplishment in now being able to be healthy enough, now being able to be in harmony enough with themselves and the environment to be able to offer themselves and those individuals that they would bond with the opportunity to reproduce themselves. Just the total opposite is extended onto these women at this state, and literally most women today and even beyond those women who are descendants from uh, Africans brought into the Americas and the Caribbeans as slaves, as this is a horrible phenomena. And as a gynecologist and as a retired gynecologic surgeon, how many women have literally destroyed their reproductive organs and have driven themselves psychologically to have to have in their minds a hysterectomy because they have every day of their lives lived in rejection of their own uterus because of their fears and insecurities around pregnancy, fears and insecurities around having healthy sexual relationships, the whole bit because of the misinformation that has been passed on from mother to daughter, from father to daughter, etc. Well, for the Melanology Hour, we will do what we can to help to dismantle that misinformation and help people lead their lives in the proper way. No problem. Well, one more round. It's almost time for us to go. And, Dr. Moore, thank you so much. You know, I just uh, enjoy having you on the show. It gives such a wonderful balance and such a uh, wonderful opportunity for the world who tunes into us to see this simple but ubiquitous molecule from so many different perspectives, but all documented, all in the scientific databases, and now they are able to literally know what has been researched and written about them for centuries. Okay, well, I enjoyed the time. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to speak to the world and, like I said, change the world. Oh, I'm uh, really pleased and excited myself, and 
you know, um, I just tell you that, uh, again, I just really want to thank you, Dr. Moore. So have a fabulous week. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye-bye, world. Love you. This is the Science of Melanology presented by Dr. Jewel Pukram and Dr. T. Owens Moore. All recorded and printed materials are copyrighted by the Jewel Publications, Inc., a subsidiary of the House of Jewels. Any unauthorized duplication of these materials is strictly prohibited. Our commitment is to connect with those who want to discover and learn the science of life and the science of living. For additional books, MP3, Mayan calendars, immortal chat CDs, registration for the balancing program, and the advanced balancing workshop, please visit our website, thejewelnetwork.com, or call 602-559-1842. That's thejewelnetwork.com, or call 602-559-1842.